If you have a Bible, uh, you can go ahead and turn to the book of Matthew. We're going to be there tonight um, in Matthew chapter 5, uh, really starting in verse, um, verse 1. We're kind of kicking off this thing. But if you were not with us last week, we are in a, uh, a sermon series. We're just beginning this thing in the Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to be in here for uh, the 2018-2019 year. We're going to take a couple of breaks throughout the, the fall and spring, but we're going to spend a lot of time in the Sermon on the Mount this year. And as we get into it, I think you'll see why. There's lots of things uh, to be mined out of this uh, sermon, these uh, three chapters of Matthew. Um, there's so much gospel application for us, and I'm really, really excited about this. And I think it's going to be a very, very helpful thing for all of us to walk through this over the course of the next year, or nine months or so. Um, but with that, we're going to begin kind of diving in last week. We did a, um, or this week, last week we did an introduction, and uh, I kind of gave a... Um, introduction on the kingdom of God and what is that and why would that apply to the Sermon on the Mount, things like that. And so this week we're actually diving into the sermon. And so we're going to get into that in a second, um, but before we do, I kind of want to set the tone with this, is because what's happening this weekend, what's happening Saturday? Yeah, Football, yes. If you didn't know, that's not good. Okay, so so we're playing some some football, not soccer, we're in America, uh, we, American football. We're playing football Saturday, it's going to be here, it's going to be great. All right, um, but here's the thing, imagine tomorrow morning, all right, Saban calls a emergency press conference. He's like, y'all, I got to tell you something. So, he, you know, every local station is like, all right, we're, gonna, we're canceling whatever soap opera is happening right now. We're going to, you know, turn on the press conference and it's a Facebook Live. Everything's on this thing. And Saban comes up. He's like, listen, I'm Nick Saban. I'm the coach of Alabama. And we're going to totally revitalize our recruiting strategy. From now on, we're changing the way that we're going to recruit and the kind of people we're looking for. You know the people we've had in the past, but I'm, I'm changing this. And from now on, here's the kind of person I want on my team. I want the weak. I want the scrawny. I want the kid that was terrible at dodgeball in high school or middle school that got pegged in the face all the time, right? I want this, the sad, like, emo people that you never want to be around. <laughs> I want the needy people. I want the lowly people. I want those people on my team. We're, we're t- totally changing our recruiting strategy. That's who I want on my team from now on. What would we do? There'd be like revolts in the streets, right? People would be like burning down things. Like they would probably find a way to set Denny Chimes on fire in revolt of what Saban's doing. It's made of brick. I don't know how that works. But there would be people freaking out, right? Like that doesn't make any sense because that's not who you want on a national championship football team, right? Does it make any sense? We want guys that are 500 pounds, made of pure brick, you know, that, that can run 50 miles an hour too, you know? So like, that's a big guy. Um, yeah, but we want those kind of people. But what we're going to look at tonight in this is really something like that happening in the Sermon on the Mount. Because as we get into Matthew 5 tonight, let's remember the context. Okay, so before we even read this passage, let me paint you a picture of what's going on here. So you had the Jewish people here in first century. They've been persecuted by the Romans for a long time. They've been oppressed by them. They're looking to be freed. They're looking for someone to come in and set them free from this oppression. They're looking for a savior. And they've heard prophecies for a long time about this Messiah person who's going to come and set them free from the oppressor and be like a new Moses to lead them out of slavery and into the promised land, right? And so what happens is Jesus shows up on the scene, whose words we'll hear from in just a minute. He shows up, but what does he begin to do? He begins to heal. He begins to work miracles. He casts out demons. He he teaches scripture with authority. And so people immediately think, man, this Jesus guy, He's, he's the real deal. He's the Messiah. He's come to save us. This is finally the guy who's come. And so Jesus begins to develop a large crowd. Tons of people begin to follow him. They, they, they're like, you know what? Like if the kingdom of heaven he's talking about is here and we're about to have a revolt, then I'm quitting my job. 
I'm going to follow this guy because he's where it's at right now. He's the person I want to devote my life to because he's the Messiah. He's going to set us free soon. It's going to be a new society. It doesn't matter what I was doing, you know, in the carpentry shop before. I'm going to leave it and follow him for now. Plus that, you've got the sick people who he's healed that are following him. You've got the people that had demons that, he's, that are now following him. He's got all these people he's healed. And so he begins to develop some hype around him. And people begin to follow him. And he actually he even begins to draw a crowd out, even in Matthew 5 here, um, to Galilee, where his hometown's at. He's got this huge crowd of people. And so he walks up on this mountain. He stands before the mountain. And he begins to proclaim kind of his, uh, his speech about what he's about. Who he is, what he's about, what his kingdom will be like, kind of what his strategy is for whatever he's planning to do. And people are they're hungry to hear these words and figure out what this Jesus guy is talking about. And is he really the Messiah? So what he does, as we'll see in Matthew 5 in a second, he climbs the mountain, which is a parallel to Moses, if you want to make that parallel. Uh, He sits down, showing his authority as a teacher of the law. He calls his disciples out to say, hey, I want you guys to sit here and listen to my teaching as my disciples. The scripture says he opens his mouth and teaches, which seems redundant. Like, of course, he's not a ventriloquist. He can't teach with his mouth closed. But the point is that they're being redundant to show his authority, like his power as a teacher and a speaker. And then he begins to explain the kingdom of God, like we talked about last week. And we'll get into that in a second. But he begins it with these things we're looking at tonight called the Beatitudes, which are an introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. They're his kind of intro. And in them, he describes who the blessed people are in the kingdom of God. The people that he wants, like his team, the people that he values, the people he's looking to recruit, the people he wants in. And it's not the people that we would expect. And so let's hear this. With that context kind of there, let's hear this tonight from Matthew 5, and we'll begin to unpack this. So all that context there, people were saying, yeah, this guy's coming to start a military revolution, and this is what he wants us to do, and this is what he says. We'll start in Matthew 5, we'll look at verse 1. We'll go all the way through verse uh, 11. It says this, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, his authority there, saying this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled, satisfied. Excuse me. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the the beautiful, just upside-down kingdom that you illustrate so powerfully in these verses and how you upend our expectations of what looks like to follow you and and, and even even the life that you extend to us, Father, that it's not what we expect, but it's so much better. As I pray for us tonight as we unpack these words, what you mean by blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom, that you would open our, our eyes, open our hearts to your word, and we may be transformed and we may see Jesus as more beautiful and all worthy of our worship than ever before. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so 
I said that dramatic intro to kind of help you feel the weight of these words. Because if you're like me, you've heard the Beatitudes like a thousand times, right? You, you know them. You may be able to quote them. What is this whole thing about? We're going to spend the next two weeks looking through these, looking at the first four tonight, and then the next four or five, depending on how you look at them, uh, next week. But here's the thing. So Beatitudes. So why are they called the Beatitudes? Well, uh, first off, um, Latin was the original language the Bible was translated into, right? Old school, back in the day, Latin. I can't speak any. Some of y'all probably can. You probably took it in high school or something like that. I think Hannah Granger can speak some Latin. Can't you? Maybe ish. Yeah, more than me. So, well, the word for um, blessed in Latin is, I'm going to butcher this, so don't judge me, okay? It's uh, beatus, maybe? Any Latin people? Is it beatus? Is it beat? Oh, beatus. Okay, there you go. Beatus is the way you say that, okay? Well, that's Latin for blessed. And so when it got translated, that kind of came over, and now we know them as the Beatitudes, or she called them the Beatitudes, I think, according to the Latin. But that's what we get, Beatitudes. But in this, what are they? What are the Beatitudes? So they are the, I'll call them the blueprints for what Jesus is going to talk about for the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. They're, They're the blueprints for life in the kingdom of God which we talked about last week, and I'll kind of unpack that again in a second. But really what these are, and what Jesus is doing for us, is he's describing for us and really inviting us into the character of a citizen of the kingdom of God. He's describing it, and he's inviting us into this kind of life. And so really what this is, and what these are, is they're a description of the life of a follower of Jesus. They're the description of the life of a follower of Christ. So with that, though, a few things I want to point out, and I gave this to you on your uh, note sheet for tonight to remember, is as we start talking about the, the characteristics of, of the kingdom, and, and this is you know, talking about the, the characteristics of a, a citizen of the kingdom of God, we have to remember three quick things about the kingdom from last week. Number one, the kingdom of God is upside down, right? So in this thing specifically, these character traits described in this sermon, like we kind of talked about with the, the Saban illustration, they're surprising, It's not the kind of thing that if you're looking to amass an army of people to take over, you know, the Roman government, which he wasn't looking to do, by the way. And if that was your perspective, this is not what you would expect, right? You wouldn't expect the poor and the meek and the merciful and the peacemaker. That's not who you're looking for. And that's the thing is that these beatitudes are in contrast to the world. In many ways, they're in a contrast to the kingdom of the world with the kingdom of God. Because in the kingdom of the world, you're the powerful, the wealthy, and the proud, right, are the people that rule you know, especially that day, but even today, right? Aren't those people kind of the ones that seem to rule the day? So as Jesus shows us the upside down nature of the Beatitudes that we'll look at here, he's showing us something surprising and he's, he's trying to catch our attention. He's using a teaching device to kind of, so, kind of catch us off guard, knock us off balance and make us wonder what's happening here. And he's going to teach us something deeper in these things if we listen and lean in. So first off, the kingdom of God is upside down. But second, we have to remember that it's an already but not yet kingdom. Right, an already but not yet kingdom. And so a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Christ, will reflect these qualities now in some ways. And we'll talk about what that looks like. But they're not going to be perfect. We're not going to be perfectly any of these things right now. But we should see the qualities of these things and these characteristics at work in our life. But they won't be made completely true in our lives until the day Jesus comes back. And makes all things right. And it'll be completely true in our lives. And all the second halves of the Beatitudes will be perfectly fulfilled. But we have to remember that. Um, Because on the day that we inherit both heaven and earth, we're going to be perfectly comforted, completely satisfied, receive full mercy, fully see God, and experience the fullness of being sons and daughters of the king in that day. But right now, the Beatitudes reveal key character traits that we want to emulate in Christ. And and they're key character traits that God approves 
of his people. But here's the thing we want to remember throughout all this is that these are not like equations or ways that we receive approval from God. To say that someone is blessed, and we'll talk about this more in a second, is not to say, okay, be poor in spirit and you'll receive the kingdom. You know, be um, mournful and you'll be comforted. Be meek, which we'll talk about what that means, and um, you'll inherit the earth. They're not equations. It's not like a plug and chug kind of thing where do this and you'll get this. This isn't a earn your you know, reward from God, earn your favor from God kind of thing. We have to remember these are descriptions. This is a description and an invitation into the life of a disciple, not a formula. And that may seem kind of you know, redundant to say, but it's going to be really important as we get into this. Okay? Because anyone who repents and believes in Jesus, like we talked about last week, the entrance into the kingdom is, is given by the king. So if we, if we repent and give our lives to Christ, we can receive these character traits. But we, they have to be cultivated over time as well. And so even though when we come to Jesus, we receive you know, this gift of being pure in heart to be focused on the Lord and have a new appetite and new desire for God in a different way, that's not going to be something that's completely true in our lives the moment we become a Christian. It has to be cultivated over time through discipleship. And so that's something else important to remember. And last thing is this, and we'll get into what does it mean to be blessed and what does it mean to, um, to practice these things. The third thing we want to remember about the kingdom is that it's the kingdom of Christ. And that's important to remember because of this. is that if you look at the Beatitudes, they're all a blessed are the so, you know, so and so, because or for this, right? There's this kind of link between one part and the second part. Well, the thing we have to remember is that Jesus is the link between the first part and the second part in all these. Is that Jesus is the link to where the poor receive the kingdom. Jesus is the link between the, um, the mournful being comforted and on and on in all of these things. Because it's only through Jesus that those things can be true and all this stuff hinges on him. And so all the Beatitudes, as we get into this, point us to the sufficiency and the supremacy of King Jesus for our glory, sorry, for our good and for his glory in the end. That's kind of a big picture of this. All right? So with that, let's talk about for a minute, what does it mean to be blessed? Because we see in these Beatitudes all the time, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are this. Blessed are that. What does it mean to be blessed? Okay. Well, the Greek word um, there, I'm going to use a couple of Greek words tonight. I'm not trying to be super nerdy. It's just helpful in this conversation, okay? So I'm not trying to just sound smart by throwing out Greek words, I promise, all right? Uh, but the Greek word there is makarios, all right? So you can, you can write that down and quote it to your friend when you go home tonight and be like, man, I learned a Greek word. Makarios, okay? Um, but all that means, well, actually, actually, it means a lot of things, but um, it's a very kind of in-depth word. It has a lot of different nuances to it. So you may have like a, a, the message translation doesn't say blessed are the so-and-so, right? It says happy are the so-and-so, and happy are this, happy are that. Other translations over time have translated makarios as a lot of different things. And there's kind of a lot of debate on what it means, because it can kind of mean the idea of happiness, but it's something, something deeper, um, but because of that word, uh, makarios, if you ever read about this stuff, sometimes the Beatitudes get called macarisms. If you ever hear that, that's what that means, but that's just kind of an aside. It sounds like a sandwich to me for something like a, uh, like a macaroon. A mac- I don't know. Um, I don't know why I thought about that. But, um, but anyway, the word makarios, what it describes is this, all right? You can think about macaroons for the Beatitudes now if you want to. But what it describes is this. Makarios describes the happy condition that is the direct result of God's favor. I say that again. It refers to a happy condition that's the direct result of God's favor. So when we're talking about the kingdom of God, we had to keep this in mind. It's because God's kingdom has been made available to us. 
we can experience the happiness and enjoyment that comes from such a reality. But it's not happiness in like the emotional sense of the word necessarily. Because if you look at the Beatitudes, it doesn't make any sense. Like if, if, if blessed is happy, then like Beatitude 2 says, happy are the not happy. Like, you know, the mournful, like happy, that doesn't make any sense, right? Happy are the not happy. I mean, Jesus speaks in deep things sometimes, but you know, that's a little bit strange. It's not what he's getting at, okay? Because my, my favorite word for makarios, for blessed, is not blessed, it's not happy. It's when I came across this summer by studying this, it's the word flourishing. Okay, flourishing. That's a weird word, but flourishing. Because if you think about it, last week we talked a lot about the kingdom of God and what it is. And we kind of summarized it in, in a simple way that the kingdom of God is God's way of doing things. But for us... Really what that is, is that's the good life for us. It's the way that God has designed life to work. It's the way, that, the way that God has planned out the way for us to live, to function in his creation. And it's for our good, it's for our blessing, it's for our fruitfulness. And so I love that word flourishing. That if we look at these beatitudes, they're not always things that involve happiness. And we know happiness can come and go. It's an, it's an emotional thing. And that word blessed, we can sometimes you imagine like hashtag blessed, you know, I got a new car today or something like that. Or we have this idea and blessing of like, you know, you're gifted something, like you've just been given something kind of externally. It's more than that. It's this idea of flourishing, of fruitfulness, of being in, in the good life, being in the right place, and knowing your place in the world and in creation. And that comes through these descriptions and beatitudes of what the good life is. So I love that word flourishing. So we'll kind of come back to that a couple of times tonight. But it's not just external, it's internal. And a few things to mention before we get into these is this, is that by beginning his sermon with these beatitudes, these macroisms, if you will, what Jesus is doing is something really cool. He's following in a tradition of Jewish teachers who they would give a lot of Proverbs as they taught. It was a, it was a traditional way that they would teach. They would give Proverbs. And in these Proverbs, they would offer practical wisdom for living in God's rule and reign. And so as we look at the beatitudes almost called them macroisms again. As we look at the Beatitudes, we see this is really Jesus giving us a great description of how we should live in the kingdom of God. They're, they're wise things to live for. Because if Jesus is the king of the kingdom, if he's the, the king in the kingdom of God, well, back in that time, the perfect king was also the perfect philosopher who knew the way to live and invited you in his kingdom. Hey, live like me and you'll live very well in my kingdom. Like live this way, I will live it out. I'll give you the example to live and that will be for your good in this kingdom. So as Jesus describes this stuff, he's really giving us, giving us a great illustration of life that he's lived it himself. Because Jesus is really the perfect embodiment of all these things, as we'll see as we walk through them. He's the perfect example of being poor in spirit, you know, of mourning in the proper way, of being meek, you know, of hungering and thirsting for righteousness. All over and over again, he's lived these out perfectly. So he's not giving us a list of, of laws to follow to earn God's love. But really what Christ is giving us here is a redefinition of who the people of God are and they're the ones who look like this beatitude kind of life, which is the life of Jesus. So he's inviting us into that, all right? So that's kind of some introductory remarks about the beatitudes. But um, one more thing with that, and we'll kind of dive into the first one. Uh, the thing is this, is that if you look at the beatitudes, it's kind of cool. There's eight or nine, depending on how you break them down. But if you say there's eight, then you can say verses three through seven, um, or the, excuse me, three through six, or the first half, the first four, and then 7 through 11 are the second half. That The persecuted part has an extra little appendix kind of attached to it. If you think about it that way, then what we see is this. Is that the Beatitudes are broken down into a vertical component. And you sound like I'm in math right now, right? You're like vertical. Engineering students are like on a statics vertical component, horizontal component. So, um, sorry, that was a really nerdy 
moment right there. But so they have a vertical component, they have a horizontal component. All right, the vertical component is the first four that show us how life in the kingdom should transform our relationship with God. The first four are vertical, our relationship with God. The second four show us how life in the kingdom should transform our relationships with other people, the horizontal component. So the first four, vertical. The second four or five, depending how you define them, if you split up the last two, um, are horizontal. That may be an oversimplification, but I've, I've come across that a lot in the time I've read on this stuff. And it seems to make sense to me. So tonight, that's what we're going to do. We're, we're going to look at the first four, the, the vertical component of the Beatitudes and how the kingdom of God transforms our relationship uh, to him, to God. Okay? So the rest of the night, we'll be looking at these first four Beatitudes. Okay? And we're doing okay. All right. So first thing, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. All right. Blessed are the poor in spirit. What, what does that mean to be poor in spirit? All right. Well, think about this. Uh, the Greek word there, I won't read it to you because it's a weird word. I can't even pronounce it right. But it means this. It doesn't just mean like poor as in like not having much, but it means this. It means reduced to begging, uh, begging, asking alms, like asking for people to give you things. It means you're destitute of wealth. You're destitute of influence, intelligence, position, and honor. So to be poor in spirit, in that word specifically poor, means that not only do you not have anything, but you're destitute of everything to where you're asking people for other things, that you're, you're looking to other people to provide you wealth, influence, intelligence, all this kind of stuff. And so someone who is poor and a beggar means they can't rely on themselves for anything, that they have absolutely nothing to offer. They have to look to the charity of other people for things. And so in this, as Jesus opens up the, the Sermon on the Mount with this, he's, he's starting off really strong for a reason. But first off, he's not talking about um, financial, physical poverty. He's not uplifting like a poverty gospel. Y'all probably heard like the prosperity gospel of like, you know, if God loves you, he'll give you lots of stuff. There's a poverty gospel out there that says if you really love God, if you're really a good Christian, you'll just like give everything away and live in a cave and, you know, like wear like, you know, sackcloth the rest of your life kind of thing. And, and that's not true either, right? God cares about our stuff and, and our hearts is the thing he cares about the most. And that will affect the way we view things and stuff. But God does not ask us to become like intentionally poor to like make our lives more miserable so we love him more, something like that. That's not in scripture at all. But what Jesus talks about here is not material poverty. He's talking about spiritual poverty, that poverty of spirit. So what he's saying here is this, is Jesus is saying flourishing, are those who have realized their own spiritual poverty and they've turned to God for both their physical and spiritual life. Those people have the good life. Those people have the good life. But the problem is this, is that a lot of times we don't see our spiritual poverty. We don't see this. A lot of us can be like the, uh, the church in Revelation 3.17, if you want to jot that down. Revelation 3.17 says this. Um, Jesus speaking to this church, he says, For you I say, for, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. So many of us, we can find ourselves in a place where we think that we have it all together, that we have all that we need, that we look to our own abilities and accomplishments, we look to our family, we look to our friends, our personality, our intelligence, we look to our morality, our, our good behavior, our, our church attendance record, we look all, to all kinds of things to tell us that we're enough to tell us that we're good enough, that God loves us because of those things. And in that, we're not being poor in spirit because we may, we, may not say out, we may not say it out loud, 
But in those things, we're really saying is that we don't really need God. That we have it kind of figured out. Our life is pretty good on our own. That if things get really bad, we'll go to God. But right now, we're kind of good. And so, like, we'll kind of keep God at arm's length. And we'll, you know, we'll give a couple bucks on Sunday. And we'll show up to church. But when it comes to really recognizing our need for him, we keep him at arm's length. And that's exactly what Jesus is combating right here. And saying, that's not how it's supposed to be in the kingdom. That's not the way I'm asking you to live. Because this first beatitude, very up front confronts us on this, that if we're going to be part of the kingdom, we have to admit that there's nothing we can produce. I'm, I'm reading for a commentary here on this. They said, nothing that we can produce, nothing that we can do in ourselves, and that we have nothing. And that we have to look to God in utter submission to him and in utter dependence upon him in his grace and mercy. That's a hard thing to hear, but Jesus is kind of setting us up clearly here to show what kind of heart attitude he wants for people that are in his kingdom. And the reason for this is this, is that we're all sinners. Is that we all come before God on a level playing field of being you know, rebellious against him. We've all sinned against God and rebelled against his ways. We've all gone our own way. We've all disobeyed the things that we knew to be right. And because of that, scripture tells us that we're spiritually dead. And that we're spiritually bankrupt. And there's nothing we can do to become spiritually good on our own. And so the fact of the matter is like, really, we're all poor in spirit. Like, all of us are, Really? The question is not, are you poor in spirit? Is that, do you realize your poverty of spirit? Do you realize your poorness in spirit? And I'm preaching to myself, by the way. I'm not just talking to y'all, all right? Because those who do recognize their poorness in spirit, their poverty in spirit, they turn to the king who has abundant riches to give them a new life and to give them what they need. Um, Charles Spurgeon said it this way. I love this quote. He said, the way to rise in the kingdom is to sink in ourselves. That the way to rise in the kingdom of God is to sink in ourselves. It's not until we recognize our need, recognize our, you know, our lowliness and our, and our brokenness that we can receive the kingdom of God and receive new life. And I love that old hymn, uh, Rock of Ages, cleft for me. And I almost got us to sing it, sing it tonight, but I love the songs that y'all sang. And so, um, but in one of the verses, it says this. I think this is a great description of being poor in spirit. It says, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Now, I love that. Such a, I mean, it's a hard description, but that's, that's who we are and how we come to Christ is in that way. But the second part of that we want to notice is that the poor in spirit receive what? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And if you notice there in that, notice how for theirs is the kingdom of heaven is both at the beginning in the first beatitude and in the end. And you kind of notice that promise, uh, yeah, notice that that promise there in verse 3 and the promise in verse 10 are the only ones that are in present tense. All the other ones are in future tense. And for the English majors in here, that's called an inclusio. I learned that today, and it's a new word. But, um, but basically the idea of that is this, the word doesn't matter, is that what he's doing here is he's bracketing these things. And so when we have the kingdom of heaven being at the beginning and the end, Jesus is showing us this, is that everything that happens in here is dealing with the kingdom of God. It's dealing with the kingdom of heaven. That's because to be poor in spirit in the kingdom of the world is embarrassing and weak. But to be poor in spirit in the kingdom of God is to be lifted up and to receive the riches of who Jesus is. And so moving on from that, these things kind of begin to build. See here, this is like the second stage of this kind of spiritual journey that Jesus now has us on. Because it's one thing to be spiritually poor and acknowledge it, right? But it's a different thing to be spiritually poor and to grieve it and to mourn it as well. 
But it just doesn't just say like mourn sin. I want you to notice this. Like it doesn't say just mourn sin. It says those that mourn, like in general. And so, so mourning over what? Well, I'd say that Jesus is saying here, it's, it's mourning over not just personal sin, but even the, the way that the world has been affected by sin. And so to mourn the effect of sin in the world, you know, because that goes directly against God's design for the world. And so we, Jesus is asking us here that are our hearts breaking over what has happened in the world because of sin? So we can mourn all kinds of things in life. And we'll talk about why and what this looks like in a second. But we can mourn not just personal sin. We can mourn death. We can mourn social injustice. We can mourn loss. We can mourn failure. We can mourn inadequacy. And what Jesus is saying here is this, is that flourishing are those who don't avoid their failures. You know, blessed are those who don't pretend that death is never going to come. You know, blessed are those who don't forget that their sin breaks the heart of God. And in this, we kind of see this progress of applying this broken hardness of sin to our own personal lives. Uh, there's a guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, he's a, a great, you know, Lauren is a fan of Bonhoeffer. Um, but uh, he's a great, uh, he's a pastor, a spy at one point, really cool. He was part of his plan to overthrow Hitler back in the day. Um, but he, um, he wrote a great book, a very hard book, called The Cost of Discipleship, where he walks through the Sermon on the Mount, and it is incredibly challenging. I encourage you to read it. It's very powerful. But commenting on this one a part of the Beatitudes, he says this. He said, The disciple does not shake off sorrow as though it were no, co- no concern of its own, but instead they willingly bear it. They do not go out of their way to look for suffering or try to contract out of it by adopting an attitude of contempt and disdain. They simply bear the suffering which comes their way as they try to follow Jesus Christ and bear it for his sake. So we don't go out of our way looking for things to mourn about, but at the same time, we don't pretend that everything's fine in the world and that sin hasn't affected this world in any way, including our own lives. And so for us, the question is this, is that looking at the second beatitude, do we mourn? I don't mean in like the sackcloth and ashes kind of way all the time. Or I also don't mean that are we always sad and like really just depressed all the time. That's not what Jesus is describing here. But here's the question. Do we take seriously sin in our own lives? And do we take seriously sin in the way it's affected the world? Because in Ecclesiastes, they say, uh, I love this passage. Um, It's just really, Ecclesiastes is like the happy, sad book of the Bible. But Ecclesiastes 7, verses 2 and 4 says this. It says, it's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. So what that's saying is this, is that realism and like really seeing the effects of sin in the world, the way it's affected us and those around us, is good for us. Not in the sense of being depressed all the time, but being real with what's going on in the world, and that might drive us first to Jesus and then to make a difference in the world. But we see this kind of reality that Christ wants to help us look at in the world. So as we're regularly reminded of the brokenness of this world, it's going to give us a desire not only to make a difference, but also a desire to see King Jesus come back and make it right. Because that's what we see here in the second part of this beatitude is that blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. And that word comfort is really cool because I will give you this Greek word because it's a good one, uh, perikaleo which is a fun word because it sounds kind of fun, but also it's the same word that Jesus uses to describe the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the book of John. That comfort is that word perikaleo and the Holy Spirit being the comforter. So in this, our takeaway from this one part is this, is that in the kingdom of God, in the life of a disciple, there's freedom to mourn. 
Another way to think about it is it's okay to not be okay. It's okay to be broken. It's okay to recognize the brokenness both inside of you and around you. And that's okay, not because we're just like depressed people that are no fun at parties, but because we recognize the reality of the world, but also because the comforter has come to us. That we have been comforted and we're, we're receiving comfort in King Jesus. And the kingdom of God is not about some kind of survival of the fittest or some kind of elite club of those people that have it all together. But it's a collection of people who recognize their own need for a savior and they have freely opened their lives to Jesus to come in and to, to make them right and to fix them. And they're in that process of that. And so the, the church is not a collection of a bunch of people who have it all together and are you nailing life, but it's a group of people who are broken, who have recognized, and well, not recognized it, but just admitted their brokenness and are coming to Jesus for life. And so Sunday mornings are like a, it's like a triage hospital room more than it is a place where we come as a country club, you know, to look, look our best and kind of pretend like we're all, you know, doing okay. But in the kingdom of God, it's okay to not be okay. It's okay to be broken. It's okay to admit your need. It's okay for us to talk about that and, and ask for prayer and encouragement. Because this is not our home. This is not the place that we will spend forever, but that Jesus will come back and make all things right and we'll receive ultimate comfort in the end. But we're here in, like we talked about, the already but not yet. Right now, we're in, we're in the middle of this tension of sin still affecting the world and God still working out uh, his plan. But the beautiful thing of the morning idea is that even in our morning as we recognize our sin, that we're fully known, but we're fully loved. That even as we recognize our brokenness, our poverty of spirit, we recognize and mourn our sin is that we can know that as we walk through this, that Jesus fully knows us. He fully understands the things that we're mourning. He fully understands the sin in our lives more than we even understand it. And he fully loves us. He fully accepts us. And he fully is willing to walk through life with us to make us more like him over the course of our lives and into eternity. So we can be real about our lives and admit our brokenness and walk in freedom together. But the third thing we see is this. We start kind of going on this path here. We see, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And so what does it mean to be meek? Okay, well, quickly, um, that word can mean mild, but really it it kind of implies a a type of humility. Uh, One commentary I read said this. It said, uh, meekness is an unassuming humility that rests in God and renounces self-effort to relieve one's oppression and to achieve one's desires. Okay, that's kind of a a long definition, but let me give you this. In view of the kingdom of God and what we've been talking about, a meek person, not a weak person, all right, but a meek person is someone who has surrendered every right of their own and lives only for the sake of Jesus. All right, a meek person, they're not weak, but they're a person that's resigned and surrendered every right of their own and lives only for the sake of Jesus. They've resigned their lives to him. And that kind of attitude is going to not just have an effect on your vertical kind of relationship with God, but even on your horizontal as well that we'll talk about more later. Um, but there's a great pastor, his name's Martin Lloyd-Jones. He's been gone for a while, but he, he preached like a bazillion sermons through the Sermon on the Mount. His book on it is like huge. And he did like a whole hour-long sermon on every beatitude, so you're welcome for me not doing that. All right, but, um, but he spent a long time in the beatitudes. But in his one sermon on that, he talked about this. And one cool thing he emphasized is that meekness denotes a humble and gentle attitude to others. And that's that's determined by an accurate view of ourselves. Having an accurate view of ourselves. Because he says this. He says that, you know, it's easy to be honest about ourselves before God. It's easy to come before God in prayer and say, yeah, God, I'm a sinner. Sorry. Please forgive me. That's one thing to go before God and admit our sin, right? But it's a lot different to allow another, another person to say, yeah, you're a sinner. 
yeah, like you deserve God's judgment because he's given you grace and, and saved you. But yeah, you're a sinner. It's a completely different thing to allow people to talk that way about you and to, you know, receive that you know, and agree with that statement about you, even though it's just as true from someone else as it is talking to God. But that's the kind of meekness that we're talking about because we kind of, we revile, we hate when people kind of accuse us of that way. Even if it's true, it kind of just makes our skin crawl. Like, you can't talk that way about me. You're a sinner too, you know? How dare you say that to me? But, but it's true because we, we'd much rather condemn ourselves than have someone else condemn us, even if it's true either way. And that's what this meekness is talking about is that it's essentially a true view of ourselves no matter who's the one you know, doing the viewing. And that true view of itself expresses itself in an attitude of respect with other people and humble and humility with other people. Because the truly meek person is the one who's not just amazed that God would love them, but that other people would, you know, would, admire, would admire them in any way as well. That they have an accurate view of who they are, their brokenness, and that they're just blown away and amazed at the grace that God has given them, not only in saving them, but that the grace God has given them in other people, being friends and in caring for them as well. Because that makes us gentle. That makes us humble, sensitive, patient, and in and, and everything with other people. Um, but with that, we look at the second part of the meekness thing here. And we have to look at inheriting the earth. You know, what does that mean for the meek to inherit the earth? Because you would think, okay, they're going to inherit like riches. They're going to inherit power. They're going to inherit fame. But Jesus says the meek inherit the earth. And the reason is because of this. is because that wouldn't be enough. Because anyone think, who thinks that they deserve riches and fame, they, I mean, they're going to lose that in the end anyway. That they don't really have an entitlement to that as it is. But instead, those who are meek in the kingdom of God kind of way, who understand their humility and agree with God and who they are, they're not going to inherit a bunch of stuff. They're going to inherit the earth in itself. Because if you think about it, in the way that we enter the kingdom, as we claim nothing for our own, as we admit our sin, as we admit our brokenness, we are allowed to enter into the kingdom and receive not just you know, a new life for now, but to receive an eternal life forever. Because if we put our faith in Jesus, we know that we have eternal life that begins the moment we put our faith in Christ. But that that life continues all the way through eternity, especially when Christ comes back and makes all things right. And if you, if you go and re- read Revelation 20 and 21, you can get a great description of the new heaven and the new earth and the life that we have for us as Christians for all eternity. And it's a life of perfect dwelling with God. It's a life where everything in this world that's wrong and evil and unjust is eradicated and that God dwells on earth with man again. And that in a real sense, Christians literally do inherit the earth to live with God forever, to reign as co-heirs with Christ in a beautiful way. And that's the future that Christians have. And that meekness he's talking about is the humility and the lowliness of spirit to admit our need and to come to God and agree with him on who we are so that we might enter that kingdom. And so we kind of see a progression that's happening here. Um, but the last thing, the last beatitude that we're going to look at tonight is this, and we'll begin to wrap up, um, is this idea of blessed are the hunger, uh, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. All right. Uh, that word for righteousness there is another fancy uh, word, but without giving you the fancy Greek word for it, the important thing to know is this, is that we hear the word righteousness and we think sometimes in church like being right with God, like right standing with God, and that can be a kind of righteousness, but the thing is, Matthew, when he writes his gospels or gospel, never uses that word righteousness in the sense of like being right with God. If you want to be like theological with it, he never uses it as a uh, imputed righteousness. He never uses it as a way to be justified or made right with God. He always uses it in the sense of, um, let me sure I have this here. Yeah, he always uses it in the sense of a personal devotion to God and His will. 
It's always a sense of like devotion to the Lord, of being right with God, not in the salvation sense, but um, like an inner goodness that leads us to want to live out God's will in life, okay? So it's a devotion to God. It's not a salvation kind of righteousness, all right? So what we're seeing here is this. Really what Jesus is describing is a change in appetite for us, to use the hunger and thirst picture, right? Because if we, this path of being poor in spirit, admitting our need, of mourning, of being broken over our sin and the sin around us, of being meek to admit who we are before God and man and receive the kingdom in that way, then what's going to happen is that as we follow Jesus, we're going to find that our appetite has changed, that we have a different desire, that we no longer desire to, to live for ourselves and just what we want to do. But instead, we'll desire to see God's will done in the world. We will desire to see other people come to know Jesus. We'll desire to see justice and holiness lifted up in life. And we'll desire to see really the kingdom of God continue to come in greater power until it comes in final glory when Christ comes back. And so it's this appetite, this desire, um, this hunger that begins to change in our hearts. And so for us, and the question I've been asking myself a lot through this is, what am I hungering and thirsting for? Am I hungering and thirsting for comfort? Am I hungering and thirsting for just like a, you know, an easy, kind of comfortable, fun, satisfying life? Or am I really hungering and thirsting after righteousness? Not in the sense that we have to like hunger and thirst, you know, and like beg God to give us salvation. He gives that freely if we repent and believe. But instead, is there a hungering and thirsting in our lives to know Jesus more and to see him made known all across the world, including, you know, our, our dorm, our campus, all around. And it's that kind of hungering and thirsting that's being described here. And then we look at the very end of that and we see that blessed are those who hunger and thirst for they shall be satisfied. And that word satisfied there is really an extreme word because what it really means is this, it means to be filled with abundance, like to overflow, to be completely satisfied like you ate like 17 steaks and you love steak and you never want to see a steak again because you've been so satisfied and filled with abundance. Because really the kingdom of heaven, I love this, I got this from a commentary friend of mine. Um, The kingdom of heaven is a never-ending feast of righteousness for those who hunger for it. The kingdom of heaven is a never-ending feast of righteousness, of being right in the world with God for those who hunger for it. There's no more searching and hope that you're righteous, but within within the kingdom of heaven, you will be. And those who realize their lack in attaining right behavior before God, those who realize they can't do anything to earn it, rather than those who boast about being right, those are the people who are going to receive what they're longing for. Those who realize their need, and those who have their hearts changed by the power of Jesus. And it's in the face of Jesus that we ultimately find the satisfaction that we see here. It's in the face of Christ that we find all our longings fulfilled. It's in the face of Christ that we find ourselves truly satisfied. And we, with that, I kind of went out to yet again go out and be his missionaries in the world. And so with that, I kind of want to conclude. And I realize I've gone a little bit over tonight. Um, but I want to conclude with this. Is that... I want to ask you a few questions, and then we'll take a few minutes to discuss, and we'll dismiss. But think about those four Beatitudes we looked at tonight. Think about poverty of spirit. Like, have you recognized that in your life, that you're poor in spirit? Because we all are. The question is, have you recognized it? Have you recognized your poorness in spirit? And have you received the riches offered to you in Jesus? Uh, Have you mourned your sin, and are you mourning your sin in the brokenness of this world? Have you found comfort in Christ? And are you driven to make a difference for Jesus in the world? Thirdly, do you have a true view of yourself? Are you truly meek? Do you agree with God and who you really are and who you're going to be for eternity, who he's making you in to be? And do you let that drive all of your relationships as well? And finally this, do you hunger and thirst for God's will to be done in the world? 
Do you have a deep hunger to see people come to Jesus, to see God's will be done in this world? And are you ultimately satisfied in Jesus while at the same time longing for his return? Because those are the kind of questions that Christ is asking us in this passage and in this description of the Beatitudes. And so for you, I mean, if you may have a lot of questions about that, those kind of things. I'd love to talk to you more about that when we're done. But for you tonight, have you entered the kingdom? Do you find these things happening in your life? And if you haven't, I want to encourage you, if you're not a believer, to put your faith in Jesus and let him transform you to make these things a reality. But if you are a Christian, look at your life and ask yourself, is this a description of my life? Is this a description of my life as a follower of Jesus? And if not, Christ is inviting you into the kingdom of God in a more profound way. He's inviting you to lean into this and to see the beauty and the wisdom of this way of living. That's for our good. and It's the good life. And so next week, we'll continue the next four and talk about the more horizontal aspect of it. But I want to pray and then give us a few minutes to discuss, and then we'll, we'll dismiss tonight. Okay? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for tonight. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the beauty of how you've shown us the way we enter your kingdom.